Welcome to the show where we expose new perspectives on our ever-evolving world through the lenses of various industries, cultures, and backgrounds. Our guests are disruptors, united by a common goal to bring their purpose to life. Whether they're from the commercial world or third sector, from the global north or the global south, expect an inspirational journey that will transform your perspective on just what is possible. My name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Today, you're going to hear from someone who not only gets what I'm talking about when I say there is a return on businesses being more human. She's been living and breathing this for over 20 years. Hello, and welcome to episode 80 of Thai Unearthed with Sarah Gillard. Sarah is the CEO of Blueprint for Better Business, a charity that helps businesses to be inspired and guided by a purpose that benefits society and respects people and planet. She's a passionate advocate for making business more human. Places where people flourish, communities that prosper, and long-term sustainability being the driving force. And she has over 25 years experience leading in fast-paced commercial environments at some of the UK's largest retail companies. Sarah joined Blueprint in May 2022. From her role as Director of Purpose and Special Projects at John Lewis Partnership, where she was responsible for re-articulating and embedding the purpose of John Lewis so that it continues to be a source of inspiration, innovation, and strategic differentiation. Prior to this role, she held senior positions across a number of different areas, including commercial strategy, trading, and people strategy. Today, we talk about how Sarah's career in the retail industry evolved and how over time sparked her interest in the role of business in society. We hear about the unique structure and philosophy of John Lewis, the importance of having a clear organizational purpose, and the need for businesses to shift towards a more socially responsible model. And she lets us in on her new role with Blueprint for Better Business and talks about how she's working with big business in the UK to consider different forms of value creation. And to expand the definition of business success beyond just financial metrics. This conversation will leave you feeling hopeful for the future and realize that what we are talking about is possible, that it has been done before, and it can certainly be done again. So throw in those running shoes or grab that favorite beverage and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Sarah, it is so wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us on Thai Unearthed. Thanks for the invite. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so I, I am so happy. This is sort of the second time that we've spoken. I've heard your name so many times, but it's just it's really <laughs> wonderful to have the second opportunity to, yeah, just hear your story and hear about you because it's really really interesting and really inspiring. Oh, well, it's a lovely lovely to be here, and thanks for asking me. It's a delight to speak to you again. I always like to do this. This is how I start every podcast because I do talk to people from all corners of the world. Where are you right now? Well, right now I'm in a client's office in Canary Wharf in London. Um, And I'm very proud of myself because normally it takes me about 40 minutes of 
panic trying to navigate Canary Wharf to get to this office, and I did it in eight. So that's a personal best. Oh, that is. <laughs> you're not I get the so lost here. Yeah, I, I, I and. and yeah, it's so nice to know I'm not the only one because the other thing that's so hard is Google Maps because the buildings are so high. Oh. You don't have any signal. No, exactly that. I'm so glad that you had the same experience because I thought I was just, it was an user error on my phone. But it didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I was. It was very confusing. And everywhere there's water, so I couldn't navigate yeah. using any landmarks either. Anyway, anyway, I made it more by luck, I think, than anything else. Good. <laughs> so tell us your story and a little bit about you before where you are now, you as the human, you as the person. Oh, thank you. Well, gosh. So ages ago, decades ago, I did a degree in politics, philosophy and economics, not thinking that it was going to be vocational. I definitely didn't want to be a politician or an economist. And I didn't think being a philosopher was a, a career choice open to me either. So I forgot about that after I graduated and frankly got a temp job, not a particularly strategic decision, but I just got a job in the first place that I could find, which happened to be a retailer. And then I spent 27 years in the retail industry. So it was... <laughs> that was a lucky careful. bet. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know if it was just um, a lack of um, applying myself to thinking about what I was best suited to. But it turned out that it was an extremely interesting place to spend 27 years of my career. It was, um, you know, an industry that's been very disrupted with the internet and changes in consumer habits. But I also again, sort of by mistake, spent the beginning of my retail career and the end of my retail career in two very different organizations. So the first was the Arcadia Group, which owned Topshop and Dorothy Perkins and Burton and all those brands that had been bought by Philip Green when I joined. So I experienced um, in a very real sense what a sort of very intense focus on shareholder profits, short-term shareholder profits, um, what that's like. Uh, inside an organization that, that has that focus and what it does to people and strategy and relationships and suppliers and customers and all sorts of that. And then the last part of my retail career, I was at the John Lewis Partnership, which is uh, the UK's largest co-owned business. It's got about 70,000, anybody who works for it, basically 70,000 people are owners of this organization. So it's got no external shareholders. And it is also in retail, but has a very different understanding of what it's trying to do as a business, uh, what its goals are, how it thinks about people. So the politics, philosophy and economics degree kicked in belatedly 27 years after I, <laughs> I, I finished the degree. And I suddenly became super fascinated about the role of business in society and how the perception of that can really shape people's experience of work, how the business shows up, and how it relates to all of its stakeholders and its long-term success and ability to survive crises and all sorts of things. So it, it all makes sense in retrospect, but yeah, ask, ask me 27 years ago and I wouldn't have had a clue. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating. And I'm sure this will come up throughout the conversation. And my next question is to help everyone understand more about your work at John Lewis and what that looked like. And why did you get working into that space? What did that look like? It's such an interesting organization. It's the UK's largest co-owned business, and I think the third largest co-owned business in the world. Yeah. Um, it currently has about 300 Waitrose stores, which are sort of premium grocery stores, and about 40 department stores. So selling everything from children's wear to fashion to beauty to tech to furniture and homewares and all sorts. And like I said, everybody who works in that business is called a partner because they literally own the business. Uh, and this happened more than 100 years ago. So the original John Lewis was a haberdashery shop on London's Oxford Street. 
run by a traditional Victorian capitalist. So he was very interested in customer service, but only because he believed that it would maximize his financial gains from the from the business. And he, you know, in, the, in Victorian times, it you know, workers were not well treated and he didn't see any problem with that. So it was his son, John Speedon Lewis, who created the organization which, uh, you know, exists today. So when he inherited the business, he'd done a lot of thinking. He, I mean, it is a fascinating story. He got thrown off his horse in about 1909 or something and spent two years lying in bed. Uh, so he had a lot of time to think about stuff. And he was a natural scientist by training and he was observing a very turbulent world. Um, so he could see political extremism um, so the rise of communism, the rise of fascism in Europe. And he he was also seeing huge inequality in society. And he was linking these two things. So, you know, the, the, the massive inequality that capitalism, the sort of industrial revolution was creating, very rich people, but, you know, still people living in slums. He thought that that was the cause of the political uh, extremism that was beginning to kind of bubble up in Europe. And he, as a natural scientist, thought, well, this situation is just not sustainable. It can't continue like this. There is going to be revolution or war or whatever. And he also thought, just as a human, it was kind of unjust. Uh, as he said, the, the 300 people who worked in the John Lewis business at the time took home less from the business in a year than he, his brother and his father did. So he thought, not only is this unjust, but it's not sustainable. It wouldn't happen in nature. So he began thinking on his, on his recovery bed, I wonder what would happen if you could get business to act like a natural system. So if it was in harmony with its stakeholders, so I mean, he didn't call them stakeholders, but its workers, its customers, its investors, its suppliers, society in general, if all of these stakeholders were wanting the business to succeed because it, it was kind of in their interest, their mutual interest for it to do so, would that make it a stronger business? Would it become a, a sort of um, adapting organism full of people who are genuinely interested in the long-term survival of the organization? I mean, as a scientist, he wanted to run an experiment. From his point of view, aligning the interests of labor and capital was the experiment he wanted to create. If giving the business away to the labor force, would that help the organization's think about its kind of position in society and how to improve uh, or create value for everybody. So he had to wait for his father to die before he was able to do that because, you know, Victorian capitalists weren't well known for giving their business away. It's an unusual move. And in fact, it took him quite a long time to do it. There had to be an act of parliament in the UK to, wow. to create the structure of the organisation because it hadn't been done before. So it, the company is held in trust for the workers of that organisation. So it is a really interesting, unique organization and he thought hard about how to make sure it continues so there's a democratic structure in place there's free journalism so there's a weekly magazine the oldest i think it's the oldest magazine in sort of industrial history so this is um, what his first ability to do anything about it was the 1920s oh, yeah, so he started to run peter jones which was one of the two shops at the time with the with these sort of principles and then it wasn't until 1950 that he was able to complete the act of parliament and give the thing away yeah. But it meant that he had a lot of time thinking about, well, how should this work? And how does the voice of the people for whom this business is run for, i.e. the workers, get through to management? How do you create channels of communication? So, for instance, he set up the magazine where any, I mean, that's, this is extraordinary today, but even more so then, any employee, any partner could write in anonymously to the magazine and a director would have to respond 
within seven days in public in writing. So, and, and that is still true today. So, uh, you know, really, and uh, uh, yes, and hundreds of letters every week anonymously are sent, and the directors have to respond. The council meet regularly; they are democratically elected, and they hold the executive to account. So, the, the structures that he put in place to try and resist the kind of normal way of doing things are, are still uh, thriving today. And it is, a, I mean, it is a properly fascinating business. It meant that it was a, it was like a big experiment, a big petri dish yeah. to see, well, what happens inside an organisation and for its long-term success if it thinks about its role differently if it thinks about people differently if it thinks about how it's creating value not just through a financial lens so for instance he saw the business very differently the the John Lewis partnership um, offered health uh, services to its workforce before the NHS existed because it saw the you know its responsibility to create a healthy environment and to support the health of the humans who worked for it not just so they'd be productive workers but because it was an end in itself yeah yeah <laughs> you know helping people be healthy so you know it was a very he was a very progressive forward-thinking visionary and it's really helped the organization I think be resilient adaptive attract people who are interested in business being a force for good in the world it's just really interesting as an aside I grew up always hearing about how important John Lewis was to our family mm -hmm. Because my grandmother worked at John Lewis. She, uh, so my mom was born in 51 and my grandmother had her really, really young. She's the eldest. Anyway, she was in a, not a very nice, my grandmother was in a, not a very nice marriage. And so she had my, my mom and her sister and she kind of escaped this horrible man and she got a job at John Lewis. And she mm. had food tokens and that kept the family going because she was yeah. on her own with two young children. She yeah. ended up getting polio. She was in hospital for three years, I think. Wow. And But John Lewis was this token part of their life. Yeah. Uh, for a, a really big part of their life. And I mean, my mom might be listening to this at some point and, and she'll be like, well, this then happened and this happened. And I, I don't know those details, yeah. but still, you know, never knowingly undersold. You know, I grew up in Canada, but whenever my mom would come back, she would always go to John Lewis, always go to John Lewis. It's extraordinary because it was much more than just a job. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that really was what the um, the founder intended i mean again he was very kind of progressive so you know in the 1920s he allowed married women to work and that was just not the done thing at the time you know so so supporting women supporting families was really sort of central to, to his thinking um and he said he wanted the partnership to be something that people want you know that gave them something to live for rather than just something to live by yeah, so it was yeah. always more than a job it was it was meant to be as if you were joining a family that supported each other that sense of you know, a human connectivity, the kind of the trust, the relationships. It really informed what the organization was, how it thought about its culture, how it thought about its strategy. You know, so it, it isn't something that's sort of been invented recently as a, as a marketing thing. It's, right? it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. Maybe you can talk about what you did there and then just help us understand where you are now. So what mm. was that? What was that transition? Well, so I joined in a commercial role. My background had been merchandising. So, I mean, I loved the job. I was selling sofas in the buying department. But as the more interested I got, in terms of the organization, why it was different. How was it able to resist the purely financially driven, competitive growth at all costs 
model that every other retailer that I was looking at at the time was was going to go. You know, what was the magic source? So I began kind of wandering around the company, <laughs> talking my way into jobs and uh, frankly I had no qualifications for but um you know I blacked it so because I was worried that the disruption that was happening in the industry was meaning that all that had made the organization successful in the past was being not kind of deliberately ignored but was not driving its strategy in the future um and I and I thought that was dangerous so if you for instance if you try and compete with Amazon on their own terms you will definitely lose. <laughs> and so, and we were in retail, right? The journalist partners in retail. So I felt like it had to get a, a sense of who it was in order to, to inform its future. So I talked my way into a strategy role and had a great time doing that and, you know, working with consultants and business models and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, strategy is important, but actually, as we all know, culture eats it, eats it for breakfast. So I thought, well, culture really is, you know, the secret source here. So then I taught myself into a people director's role and did some stuff on culture and leadership and operating model and all that stuff. And I again had an absolute ball lent loads. And then I thought, well, actually, strategy and culture are both symptoms of the sense of identity or purpose of the organization. And what I was diagnosing at the time was that everybody believed the organization to be purpose-driven, but there were like 70,000 different versions of what the purpose was. That's when I properly geeked out on the history of the organization. thought, well, I can I can try and begin this conversation about what's our purpose, what's when in the 21st that? century. Just for people who know about John Lewis, because oh, this is God. fascinating, like how long ago? Well, do you know, so I, so I started poking at this probably in about 2014, 2015. Honestly, I was rapidly educating myself because I didn't know anything, you know, I'd self-sofas I didn't know anything about purpose of organizations or so I did a lot of reading and I went to a lot of conferences and listened to a lot of TED talks and basically tried to understand this topic because there aren't at the time certainly there weren't purpose professionals in businesses or consultancies that I was aware of at least um, so I didn't know where to learn. So I was just kind of reading anything that I could and using external mentors and things and then I started sort of knocking on the door to say this conversation needs to happen but timing is everything Philippa and weirdly enough the chairman changed and there was a you know partly a new executive team six weeks after they all joined we were in lockdown so oh March 2020 oh and that that was a very challenging time to be anywhere of course but in the partnership the John Lewis stores were all shut um which has huge implications as you can imagine for the supply chain and you know blah 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 in Waitrose, they were trying to manage two or three hour queues outside the building and work out how to give food. They had security guards on the toilet roll aisles because if you remember, there was oh, a massive yes, on the toilet a- I mean, <laughs> the amount of operational challenge that we were dealing with at that time. And I was wandering around the organization saying, now is the perfect moment to talk about why are we here? And I was thinking, this is... <laughs> this is not going to go down well. But you know what? It was exactly the right this moment to talk about why we're here yeah. because... When people are totally. operating from a place of extreme kind of pressure and crisis. intensity and crisis, and there aren't any guidelines and they're having to rely on judgment and making up as they go along and, and really at the edge of coping, people wanted to talk about what it was all in service of. Why were they, why were they doing it? Why were they working 15-hour shifts? Why were the thousands of John Lewis partners who were on furlough and could have chosen to sit in their garden in the sunshine on full pay, why were they showing up at the Waitrose, uh, their local Waitrose, oh, to help to help with the 
he was making, I mean, literally 12,000 partners every day. No one told them to do it. They weren't bonus to, there was no financial incentive. They just showed up every day because they felt so strongly the purpose of this organization is to help communities, to help customers, to support your colleagues, to, you know. Now, that wasn't captured in any of the ways that we were talking about the purpose of the business at the time. And I, so I was like, right, if we're able to capture what is going on here, what's driving people, not only now, but in the, in the hundred years that we've been here. Well, you know, I think back to my grandmother who was in like a proper crisis and it was John Lewis that was that solid structure that saw them through. And I just think yeah. when the world is falling to pieces, everyone just looks for some kind of beacon. Yeah, right? absolutely. That relies on having built trust and connections and relationships and you're never going to see that on a spreadsheet it's very hard to quantify in any kind of you know value metrics that we use to talk about companies and their success and what they're achieving and all the rest of it but that sense of of meaning of finding meaning and, and, and feeling like you're contributing something that you're serving the common good in some way it's really tangible when you see it but because it wasn't written down anywhere in a way that people could relate to everyone was interpreting it in different ways which is fine in a crisis but in general business as usual operations if you're not clear on what your purpose is in an organization then it doesn't define success it can't shape your strategy it can't guide decisions it can't inform your culture so that's why having worked in the commercial bit the strategy bit the culture bit i was like right if we could if we could be really clear on why this organization exists, how is it serving the world, not just in the products and services and whatever that it's you know, selling, but what is it actually trying to achieve in the world? Maybe that would help it um, evolve in a, in a very disrupted landscape with a clear sense of who it was. So where did you get to? I mean, I'm curious to know. I've got other <laughs> questions because we need to move to where you're at, but I am just curious. Is there a way to kind of sum up where you kind of got to after? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I maybe mean, it's still a journey that they are on because you're no longer I mean, there, it, but... It certainly is. I mean, so the first thing we did is we did a giant listening exercise because there's no way you can just lock yourself in a room with a few people and go, right, what's the purpose of this organization in an organization that's owned <laughs> by 70,000 people? And actually, the, now the work that we do, even if you're not a current business, it's so critical to listen to the people who, who are impacted by the business. Why does, you know, what makes you proud to work for? this business why do you work with this business if you're a supplier why do you invest in this business why do you shop with them or whatever so we did this huge listening exercise for customers for partners as in employees for suppliers and we luckily we already had a written constitution that again sort of originated in like 1925 there have been various iterations of it since but the last iteration had been written in 1999 so what we were focused on, and there was a working group created across across the organization. What we were focused on was, can we get to a set of words that could update the constitution in a way that described what the purpose of the organization was that was relevant to the 21st century? And then from that, that would give us a document that we could then say, okay, what does this mean for strategy, for brand, for the employee value proposition, for how we source, for thinking about procurement, for supply chain, you know, the whole works. So that, of course, is a constant iteration because societal expectations are always changing and the organization is changing. So that, I expect, will continue forever. But yeah, the, the constitution was updated and, and the purpose was, was discovered again uh, anew. Um, you know, we didn't invent it because the guy invented it 100 years ago. We just updated it with, with language that resonates today. What an amazing journey to have been a part of. Yeah, uh, such a privilege. Extraordinary <laughs> Extraordinary. So talk to us about where you are now, Blueprint for a Better Business, and how did you get there? 
so having had this epiphany <laughs> that, that my politics, philosophy and economics degree and the kind of interaction of business in the real world, the way that business thinks about itself or the, the people inside that business, because you know, what is business? It's just a group of people coming together. The way that they think about what they're trying to do together will fundamentally impact their own lives, the success of the organization, society as a whole, this kind of epiphany. I thought, well, I've seen what that can do in terms of positive impact. And if you look ahead to this next decisive decade, the role that business can play, needs to play in shaping our future in a more positive direction is so critical. There is no one answer to these challenges that we're facing, environmental Challenges, you know, biodiversity loss, social inequality, these are huge, huge challenges and no one actor alone, whether it's government or, you know, regulators or whatever is going to fix it. Business absolutely has to be part of the solution. And imagine if the power of business, which is frankly the best organising system that we have for harnessing resources and achieving things and solving problems and innovating, Imagine if that could be focused on society and creating value for society and long-term flourishing for, for all people and planet. Wouldn't that be awesome? So I thought, yeah, well, yeah, that would be awesome. But it, but it has to, <laughs> that's quite a different paradigm <laughs> from the one that we're currently in, where business sees itself often as a profit-maximizing machine with humans sort of instrumentalized in service of that. So I, I was sort of wandering around thinking, well, how do I share my lived experience, but also how do I sort of elevate this conversation? or help catalyze this conversation on a broader platform than, than just going into one other company and, and, and talking about it there. So fortunately for me, Blueprint for Better Business, which is this fantastic charity set up about 12 years ago. So the purpose of the, of the charity is to create a better society through better business. They were looking for a, a CEO because the brilliant founder, CEO Charles Wickey, was stepping down, retiring. Uh, although he's a very active trustee, I should say, and most supportive, so he's not really retired. <laughs> so I joined this charity about 18 months ago and and it couldn't have been a, a more sort of joyful, joyful job for me because this charity was created to try and initiate this conversation. Um, what's the role of business in society and how do we think about it differently? And, and actually, if you bring some more expansive ideas to the framing of business and how to think about business, how to think about people within business, what becomes possible? What does it unlock in terms of potential for individuals, for companies, for society more generally? And because the charity was started as a conversation between some sort of very um, high-powered CEOs, including Paul Polman and others at the time, you know, the access that this charity has had over the years to executive teams and boards and investors of, you know, FTSE 50 companies. I mean, it, the access to conversations, the potential impact is really significant. So we're a very small charity, but the work that we do is basically to share these ideas with senior leaders of big companies and, and help them explore it and ask questions around what becomes possible, what, what might this unlock. Um, so it's just a, a such a privilege to, to be in a job like this. <laughs> As we talked about the last time that we spoke, I was in the process still of writing my book called Return on Humanity, which now <laughs> it's now available for pre-order and we've made the top of the charts. Congratulations. Uh, categories on Amazon. It's still there That's amazing. today which is really exciting. Oh, so well done. Yeah, well, you know, obviously I've written a book around this and so everything that you're talking about obviously is something that I just get equally <laughs> enthusiastic about. And I just, I'd be curious to know just from these conversations that you've had over the last 18 months and obviously Charles I've met as well and yeah, it's super, I mean, it's just amazing meeting these individuals who 
also feel very passionate about this. And, you know, obviously talking to the CEOs that you've all been talking to, what would you say the return on humanity is in business? Well, do you know, it's so interesting because I think business in general has for a long time, 50 years or so, operated in a context where it tries to quantify everything using financial metrics. And that's really understandable, right? Because it's simple and uh, relatable and you know clear. You can make decisions based on that. And, and if your goal is to maximize the financial return, then you know if you're making progress. <laughs> you can create bonus schemes and incentive structures and comparison tables and all the rest of it based on, based on that. But it is a very narrow definition of uh, return. And it's a very narrow definition of what business is capable of and the value that it can create. And I think opening up to, well, what is the value that we are creating as a group of individuals coming together, which is what a business is, opening up that discussion to use, you know, to, to consider different forms of value is so critical. And actually, you know, before sort of the 1970s and the famous Milton Friedman essay about what's the role of business in society to maximize shareholder returns, you know, this was quite a common conversation. Business, of course, was seen as really integrated in society. Uh, you know, John Speed and Lewis was thinking, well, here is my business. We employ people in the, in the local area. We buy things from suppliers. Um, we serve customers. You know, we, we are part of this society. Um, and how do we contribute value towards it? So taking off the sort of financial sole focus enlarges the scope of what an organization and the people within it become interested in, how they make decisions and where they see opportunities to create value. And that might be, how do you help people flourish? How do you help communities thrive? How do you help people connect? How do you protect and restore the natural environment? How do you build trust within society? How do you help reduce inequality basically how do you how do you serve as a business that's your role how, what, what is it that you're providing in terms of goods that are truly good and services that truly serve because if you're doing that well then profit is a necessary outcome of that but it's not the goal the goal is to serve um and that just that framing alone creates a very different sense of of what you're trying to achieve and, and totally. therefore, what the returns. And you know, it's so interesting because also, kind of in the same way that at John Lewis, you were sort of on this campaign to kind of just talk to a whole lot of different people and do the strategy and then the culture and just sort of the more you researched, the more you realized what was there. And I kind of feel the same journey I've been on when I've been doing this book. But what has been fascinating is everything that you've just talked about. Companies, if they do actually focus on these things, they're more competitive. They, they are better. It's more sustainable. And you actually do end up being able to do more. But like you say, yeah. it comes down to the reframing and yeah. the old school way of doing things. And again, back to kind of the first retail experience that you had, it's fascinating when you look at the two different models, if you like. One is still very much there and still going and there's a reason for that because it's been a part of so much more than just people's bank statements i think that's exactly right and, and and if you think about you know the last 50 years of course have had <laughs> challenges but in general socially environmentally economically politically in the western world in particular it has been relatively stable if you think of the next 50 years environmentally socially politically it is unlikely 
that we are going to experience that level of stability. So if we know that the sort of the, you know, poly crises, as we now have an unfortunate term for it, is going to be the norm, what are the organisations going to look like that are thriving in, in that environment? How, you know, what are the organisations going to be like yeah. that are attracting investment and talent and customers and the rest of it? It's the ones who have got a clear articulation of how they are contributing positively and that is actually lived out in what they say, what they do, how they act, how they, you know, everything. It's not a kind of PR thing. It genuinely is who they are. So if you're inside an organisation now that hasn't started this journey, it is likely that you'll quickly become irrelevant. And, and so resilience and relevance to me are the, the reasons why purpose and being clear on that will make you a better business. Now, that might be measured in financial returns, but it might also be measured in how do you help people <laughs> live well? And so those are the organisations that I think are going to survive in the future and thrive. It's out-behaving the competition, isn't it? Yeah, and, and then actually some of the organisations that we work with that are most sort of advanced on this journey are, are thinking also, well, how do we raise the whole sector? So how are we sharing what we are learning as a, as a business with others so that the entire sector, the entire industry can lift itself up? So often it starts with a, how do we gain competitive advantage from this? But actually, as the thinking progresses, it then extends to, well, how do we share what we're learning so that others yeah, can, can right. join us? So that's really interesting and I love that. What does the future look like then for Blueprint? Because I feel like you are drivers in this. I mean, you you have an interesting view and voice, I think. You know, where are you going? Well, um, yes, yeah, a good question. I mean, we're, we're a small charity. And I think when we first started, the, the key presenting problem was how do you get this conversation talked about in boardrooms? Um, and that now is happening, which is great. And, and all credit to Charles and the team and the trustees who, who helps that conversation become sort of more mainstream. The presenting problem now is more, well, how on earth does an organization move from thinking of itself as a profit-maximizing machine to thinking of itself as a human system in service of society? How do you go through that transition? So we continue to work with businesses in what we call social contracts. So we walk alongside the exec team and, and the the board as they uh, go on this journey. But increasingly, we've sort of seen that having a, an exec team that is keen for this is necessary, but not sufficient. You also need the functional heads of or directors with their hands on the operational levers of the business to yeah. know how to move this. So, you know, head of strategy, head of culture, head of ESG, head of finance, whatever their kind of functional um, expertise is. So we have, along with um, Nat West and a, a lady called Sue Brooks from Imagine, have created a community of practice for practitioners cross-sector who are on this journey and are wanting to come together and learn from each other about how to do it. So we started this community about a year ago. We thought, you know, in the first year it'd be great to get 10 organisations signed up. We've got 80 signed up without... <laughs> well, I think it's it's just a totally um, a reflection of the appetite that's out there. So many people, for so many reasons, I think the pand pandemic really accelerated this as well. People thinking, well, my, I want my organisation to be part of the solution. I want to feel like we are contributing positively. How do we make sure that that's true? So I think many, many people are, are, are trying to work that out. And, and so bringing them together and, and, and holding space in sort of the forum for them to to share and learn from each other is, is part of how we're trying to enhance our impact. And then one of the other things we're doing, we recognize that a lot of consultancies are also operating in this space and they may have come from a background in sustainability or strategy or cultural leadership, but are now increasingly uh, seeing the purpose as being relevant to, to their expert area. And so we're working with a few to, to sort of share our thinking to see if, if we can uh, help them with their work. 
so that the work that they do with clients is informed by the sort of blueprint perspective on, on purpose that's been developed over the years. So, yeah, how to sort of maximise impact without radically and heart tripling the size of the charity because that's just a funding difficulty. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think what would be really interesting, just, you know, we spoke recently about the need to develop more human centric abilities for leaders in business and just Mm. reflecting on what you've just said. It's not just about having a really senior individual kind of bring you guys on board. It needs to filter through, doesn't it? And everyone needs to understand what this even means. So, you know, why is that important? And what do you think is needed for that to happen? Well, so the reason it's important, I think, again, if you think business for a while has put itself into the box of being a machine devoted to financial maximization, that's a bit of a generalization, but in general. And it's also put humans into a box of being rational Uh, self-interested, economically motivated actors. And that's quite useful for economic models, but it doesn't actually align with what we know about human nature from any other study, anthropology, sociology, psychology, (laughs) behavioral science, anything else. So I think the first step is recognizing that humans are, of course, extrinsically motivated by money, status, and power, but are also intrinsically motivated by a desire for meaning and connection and belonging and feeling like you're contributing to something greater than yourself and that you're learning new things. All of these intrinsic motivators are very powerful and they're much more human. And I think businesses creating an environment where all of that intrinsic motivation can find a place inside business and and that people can show up with their full richness of humanity That's more likely to lead to an environment where people feel able to collaborate, to innovate, to create, to imagine new ways of doing things that are going to be so necessary for the future. So I think, I hope actually that businesses are going to naturally become more human places because we need the full spectrum of human capabilities in order to navigate the way forward. So, you know, and I think how it happens, so often we find that individuals if you speak to them one-to-one, we'll say, well, I am motivated by a sense of purpose and, you know, creating something positive and whatever. Others are motivated purely by money. And then everyone says that. <laughs> you kind of go, right, guys, everybody, <laughs> you all individually are motivated by this kind of strong sense. And it's because the environment that typically is created in business means that nobody says this stuff because they think they're going to get laughed at or they think they're going to be told they're naive or foolish, or weak, or sentimental, or emotional, or some other kind of pejorative word. Actually, this is about strength, and being a full human, and sharing dreams, uh, and you know, building something. Exactly. This is what allows extraordinary stuff to happen, is, is when humans connect, and, and imagine what might be possible. So, I think the very kind of rational, logical data-driven environment that often is the case in business uh, restricts people and their ability to do this kind of stuff. So I think that in itself will unlock huge potential. We've just launched a program, you know, it's a scalable program that now touches on about 500 people from a company and it's all really rooted on, what we've done has always been rooted in human competencies, but this is very much focused on like self-awareness and interconnectedness and interdependence and suddenly we're blowing open these opportunities for people to have conversations about things that aren't talked about in business. And it's yeah. fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And giving people that permission to to reflect on things and have these conversations. And you're right, once you start opening up and once you actually have these conversations, then it does, it changes yeah. things. Now we are, we are coming to the end, but I just 
I often ask people if there's a quote. Some people love them, some people don't, but mm-hmm. I, I love them. And I just think sometimes there's ones that really just capture what we've talked about. And I just wonder, do you have a quote perhaps summarizes today's conversation? Well, I have two. Oh, God. Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My lucky day. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> And I'm going to get both of them a bit wrong. So the first one, so often in this sort of territory, there is a sense of, I don't know, responsibility or a trade-off between purpose and profit, or we have to do this because, you know, the world's burning, or a kind of a heaviness to it. And so the quote that I love, if you're wanting to build a boat, you don't give people a manual and tell them how to cut the wood and all the rest of it. You give them an endless yearning for the sea. I think that it really speaks to, you know, humans are capable of extraordinary things, extraordinary things. I've got goosebumps. But the internal drive, the desire, the motivation has to come from within. And then incredible things become possible. So I love that. I love that. I love that quote. (laughs) And the other one, which I find particularly kind of useful, so so useful in the fact that (laughs) my kids will tell you it's written on my wall in the kitchen. (laughs) Because when you think about this stuff, it can feel a bit overwhelming. And you think, oh my God, we're going to try, we're trying to change the entire economic, financial political social system here into something that is about human and planetary well-being rather than about financial growth. Where the hell do you start? It can become a a bit kind of (laughs) overwhelming. So the quote that my excellent mentor, Margaret Heflin, said to me about 15 years ago when I was feeling overwhelmed, she said, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And I just, the the kind of human scale of that. (laughs) I love that. Oh, so there you go. There's my two, they're my two best ones. Oh, those are so great. Listen, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell our listeners? It's really easy to be cynical about this. And it's really easy to, to think that it's too hard. And I suppose if you imagine the world that you want to live in, in 25 years time or 50 years time or however, whatever the time frame is, or the, the one that you want to, your children to live in or your friend's children to live in, you know, the contribution that you will make to creating that world will be significant no matter what it is that you do or don't do. So take hope um, that you can make a difference and think long-term and start where you are. <laughs> Use what you have, do what you can, but remain joyful. That's, I guess, my, my top tip. Sarah, I have absolutely adored this conversation. Thank you for giving us an hour. That is just amazing. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank I really you. enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. And until the next time. Great. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you're looking to create better leaders, better companies, and a better world, that's just what we do by helping leaders tap into their greatest asset, their humanity. We have a number of corporate programs that impact a range of people, from individuals at a company to 500 people around a business. Or check out my book, Return on Humanity, Leadership Lessons from All Corners of the World. You'll find the answers to how business can truly become a positive force while remaining at the forefront of competition. You can find all the information you need on all of this at thaileadership.com. Get in touch and I can explain more. A huge thanks to Berna Vieira for co-producing this with me and for creating the music. I hope we'll meet up again soon.